I don't want to do this, Jet. Then why are you? Let's just say my past is catching up to me. Howdy, Cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Colin Tanner. And I'm Steve Cuff. And every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. Steve... We're finally here. It is the era of Bandai visuals. This is pretty exciting because all of my friends that have actually watched the show before, they're like, ooh, just wait till you get to episode five. I've told you before, your friends do not sound well. You better take care of them, put a blanket on them or something. But it's true. In fact, uh, the very first Cowboy Bebop DVD released in America in early 2001 contained five episodes. And that's really unusual because back in the day you would get maybe four episodes or three episodes or even in the worst case scenario, two episodes. That seems like a colossal waste of DVD space. And they all cost $30 each. Oh, jeez. And I have complete sets for many, many anime series that I still enjoy to this day. I'm concerned about young Colin's bank account. Young Colin had no bank account. It all went to Suncoast Video. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it was worth spending $120 on that uh, Tenchi Muyo OVA collection, let me tell you. So, five episodes on the very first DVD because they knew that once you saw this, you would be hooked. And like I said before, I would lend out my DVDs to my friends. They would stop around episode three and I'd go, no, 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 stick with it. Just watch episode five. And once they did... They too were hooked. We're finally here. The Ballad of Fallen Angels. This is going to be a kind of different episode than what you've experienced before. It's like this is a different Cowboy Bebop episode than what we've experienced before. I mean, I think what we strive to do at Optimism Vaccine, and someone once described what we do as talking real smart about really dumb shit. Uh, so that's one way of putting it, I guess. Uh, but the way I like to think of it is, you know, instead of just kind of going over a piece of pop culture, whether it's a, you know, a film or a television show or a song or a band or anything, and just sort of skimming over the surface, we like to take uh, small little bits and kind of delve really deep into them and then try and mine out whatever, you know, interesting truths or revelations uh, are in there. Yeah. And I think you can do that with a lot of different types of pop culture, but we've been struggling, I think, at least since episode two, to really dig deeper because a lot of the shots were face value shots. We saw a circumstance we saw a character react, a circumstance react. And even though I love episode two a lot, it doesn't have anywhere near the visual complexity that we're going to have in Battle of Fallen Angels and a lot of future episodes. Like watching this reminded me how good the series gets and I can't wait to get there. Yeah, well, I think even more so than the visuals, I think narratively, everything that we've been watching has been really like linear and just kind of fun. And I kind of think of it in terms almost of the way that I watched The X-Files. So The X-Files has their kind of like creature feature of the week, like, oh, and here's a wolf man, and it's kind of a goofy episode. And then they have episodes where they sort of dig deeper into the characters and they move this overarching narrative along and things like that. Bebop seems to be doing things in a similar fashion where you have the first episode that really hints at a, a much bigger story and some very rich, interesting characters. And then you have a few episodes in a row where these characters are sort of just kind of bouncing around from scenario to scenario. And then by the time you get to episode five, which is where we're at now, all of a sudden we're learning a lot more about who these characters are. There's a phrase that's been talked about on the internet for a while now. It's about Star Trek The Next Generation and how season one wasn't quite that good and how it got better. And they call it growing the beard because in the second season of uh, Star Trek, Riker, uh, Captain Riker, he grows a beard and suddenly becomes a more interesting character. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now. This is going to be the growing the beard of Cowboy Bebop. We're really mixing our science fiction metaphors right mm, here, aren't we? Love it. But before we get into that, we have to get into 
a little bit of bebop history. And this week, because of the amazing music in this episode, we're going to be delving into the history of composer Yoko Kano. Not all of her stuff. We're just going to we're going to go through the greatest hits. Now, before we talk about what makes Yoko Kano great, I think we need to take a look at what makes Japanese television and Japanese media so awesome. For some reason here in the West, we have a problem with memorable soundtracks. We don't want them, or at least the major studios don't want them. I, I think in American cin- cinema, at least like popular American cinema, you got your John Williams, you got your Danny Elfman, uh, and, and those are kind of the two big ones. Yeah, I mean, like uh, going from Batman with Danny Elfman to The Dark Knight with... Drums? I think there were some drums going on. I can't really remember. (laughs) Like, I tried finding what is the best new score for a movie that's not independent. Mm -hmm. But even something like The Hunger Games, there's no score. It's just noise. It's just a layer of texture without any sort of emotional punch. Yeah, and I think the other thing that you run into as well, at least, again, and this we're talking about, like, you know, popular cinema here, is... You, you got your you got your John Williams and that scene is like the gold standard. So a lot of times with popular wide release movies, you just have scores where they're just kind of trying to sound like John Williams. And uh, really, if you <laughs> if you look at the Marvel movies, the most memorable scores are probably from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And that's because they utilize pop music instead of like just an orchestral score. Let's go back over to Japan. Even the weekly broadcasted animes have these powerful soundtracks that overwhelm the audience and dominate the emotion of the scene. And that's really beneficial to the production of anime where animation has to be limited sometimes. This is all just to say if you've only watched Cowboy Bebop, a TV show with an amazing soundtrack, you should know that's not the only one in Japan. Just off the top of my head, things like Bacano and Trigun and Dragon Ball Z in Japan. When they brought over to America, they actually changed the music and it's horrible. It's the worst music. But even then, Yoko Kano is a step above everyone else. She's a magical person. She should not exist, but she does. But she's also a fairly private person. There's only two widely known interviews with her, which makes gathering information from her kind of difficult. In fact, you're better off reading interviews from her collaborators rather than herself. But we do know she was born in Sendai, Japan on March 18th, 1963. From a very young age, she began to mess around with the family piano, piecing together sounds that she heard in church. That's right. She actually attended a Catholic kindergarten. In case you're unaware, Catholicism has been part of Japanese culture for four and a half centuries, though mostly in secret, but began with the Vatican II in the 1960s, Japanese Catholics became more public, though overall Christianity only accounts for 1% of Japan's population. Yeah, Shinto or die, bitch. (laughs) Anyway, Kano's abilities quickly formed as she learned to play hymns. She even recalls her school teacher having difficulty playing the organ, so Kano eventually just took over for her. And she was six years old at the time. I don't know about you, Steve, but I had a hell of a time playing hot cross buns on a recorder when I was 15. Hey, we're actually, and I'm not even joking, we're sitting next to a grand piano right now. So if you want to play a little heart and soul, man, we can do it. Hell yeah. By the time Connell reached middle school, she had already won almost every local children's musical competition. She even recalls being uncomfortable with winning. People treat her victories as a foregone conclusion, and as such, no one ever congratulated her. Eventually, one of the judges, the legendary composer Kudagawa Yusushi, noticed how unhappy she was. He pulled Kano aside and told her she didn't need to do these sort of contests and to ignore the pressure that adults were putting on her. She says this was a major turning point in reclaiming her creativity. Now, I think we this is something that we, we see happen a lot. These like children prodigies that just get pushed into something so much by their parents that the very reason they discovered it and enjoyed it in the first place is just gone. 
In fact, when she went to college, she stopped speaking to her parents for four years. Damn. Seriously. It's not hard to see why, though. Her parents refused to let her watch TV or read manga or comic books. Classical music was her only outlet. So by the time she got to college, she was extremely resentful at society and decided to become a novelist. I'm pretty sure everyone, as soon as they get to college, decides they're going to be a novelist. Yeah. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to be the next Holden Caulfield. Yeah. I mean, she, she sounds kind of douchey just based on that. It's just like, yeah, you know, I'm a musician, but really what I want to be is an author. Everybody does that. But like everyone else in college, she was exposed to new ideas. She recalls watching a friend playing drums and being completely perplexed by how he was able to control m- movement. She keeps describing it as this thing that she couldn't quite articulate. She was so sheltered just by classical music, she was never exposed to rhythm. That's kind of crazy. Inspired by the discovery, she started studying Madonna and Michael Jackson, eventually joining a band called Tetsu 100%, becoming the keyboardist to the jazzy funk band. Let's give a listen to one of their super cheesy live performances that I also completely love. Cool, Colin. This sounds like Katamari Damacy. Really? You don't like it? It's fine. It, but it really sounds like, like if if you were to be like Steve, what does like J-pop sound like in the '90s? I'd be like this. That was it was in the '80s, but for me, it kind of sounded like um, who did what's new, Pussycat? Tom Jones, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. Japanese Tom Jones, Katamari Damacy. Anyway, after six albums, the band dissolved. But thankfully, her experience with the group restored her passion for music. And fortunately for Kano, she had already established herself as a composer for video game soundtracks, with her first work appearing on Koei's landmark 1985 title, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Between 1985 and 1994, she wrote nine soundtracks for Koei. That is no small feat, all of which were hugely popular strategy games in Japan. Now, I think we can both agree that when you're playing a strategy game, like, uh, I don't know, Fire Emblem is like a recent example that comes to mind, those are much more slower paced games where you have to spend a lot of time just looking at everything. Music is crucial there. Super important. And if anybody hasn't played Romance of Three Kingdoms, well, there's a good reason why you haven't. They're very slow. It's a lot of menus. They're super niche strategy games. Uh, so if you're like really into Microsoft Excel and you're like, man, I wish this was a video game. There you go. There's a reason they started making Dynasty Warriors. Now we're going to skip ahead because Kano is staggeringly prolific. We could spend multiple episodes discussing her contributions to games like Ragnarok Online 2, or her pop music collaborations with artists such as Maya Sakamoto, or her work in commercials, film, TV, not to mention her solo albums. But for the sake of brevity, we're going to focus on her anime work. And we're even going to skip over most of that. But she did start an anime when she wrote the ending theme to Miyazaki's Pokoroso. Yes, that is the pig anime, Colin. I, I know all the anime. That's a really good one, though. No, it is. That's a great movie, yeah. And then supplied some songs to the OVA, Please Save My Earth. But in 1994, she was given full control with Macross Plus, which of course is where she meant Sinitro Watanabe. The soundtrack was a hit amongst viewers, thanks to its contemporary pop sound. But her true moment of recognition wouldn't come until 1996's Visions of Escaflone. <laughs> It's funny because this sounds like every boss fight in a JRPG. (laughs) 
basically. They stole it from her. Yeah. No, seriously. Like, if, if you were to come up with, like, oh, look, it's the it's the end fight in a Final Fantasy game, this is what it sounds like. In terms of epic fantasy soundtracks, this is my personal favorite. There's just so much going on, like, the, 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 the using the instruments in terms of, like, the melodic structure. And all the all the pieces have choirs and strings and brass and percussions. Uh, it was orchestra music with a budget, and she actually knew what she was doing. I think that's the biggest shock here is that she's been doing pop music and video game music. And like, here's an orchestra, and she's like, oh, yeah, I got this. Writing for an orchestra is not easy. <laughs> you were writing for each musician in that orchestra. They're not improvising. I mean, this seems obvious, but maybe some people don't know. <laughs> and in the midst of her latest achievement, Watanabe asked her to join on to Cowboy Bebop, where she could write jazz music. And as we all know... Yoko Kano said no. She turned it down. She did not want to make jazz music. She didn't even like jazz music. <laughs> Apparently, she had been part of a brass band in high school, and she hated how boring the music was. Which, that's just hilarious, especially when you think about, like, Bebop's soundtrack. That's, that's mind-blowing that she hated jazz music. But Watanabe persisted, even dropping off jazz albums for her to listen to. And eventually, Kano relented. In fact, she said she used those negative experiences from high school and channeled them into Bebop's opening track, Tank. She recalls a desire when she was young to play brass music that shook you to your soul and made your blood boil and made you lose it. And I think it's safe to say she completely delivered. And I think that's kind of funny because now when I listen to Tank, it really does feel like it's coming from a source of desire and anxiety. Anyway, after Bebop, she continued her work in anime. And when asked why she chose animation over larger productions, she explained, It may not be democratic, but I'd much rather be asked to provide music for crazy people who come up with crazy projects. Works which express taboos within the human psyche outright, or works which express thoughts and habits of the producer. I think these are the characteristics of Japanese anime. Now, to this day, she remains one of the most respected and admired composers. And I think her personality is best summarized by the following quote. I go to zoos. I touch animals. I love animals. I like taking pictures. I want to quit music and become a photographer, end quote. What, what kind of zoo is she going to where she's touching the animals? That seems dangerous, Miss Kano. Pet and zoo? <laughs> I don't know. It's a Japanese zoo, I don't know. In other words, don't take Yoko Kano too seriously. She definitely doesn't. Steve! Can you tell us when today's episode aired? Sure, Colin. It aired on my favorite TV channel of all time, Wow Wow, on November 21st, 1998. And it also aired on Adult Swim on September 23rd, 2001. And it aired never on TV Tokyo. Now you might be noticing if you've been paying attention to the air dates. The last episode was September 9th. This episode aired on September 23rd, and so, by all means, they just took a week off because of September 11th, but I had to know if that was true. <laughs> So I went on a little detective search to find the truth. Is that true? Did Adult Swim take a week off? Uh, it, it did not take a week off, but Bebop did. Oh, okay. Cowboy Bebop did not air its usual two episodes as per usual. Everyone was feeling a little sketched out about violence and exploding buildings and bodies falling out of said buildings. I think we can all agree why that might be. And if you're too young to understand what happened with 9-11... Go like, on YouTube and watch that shit. It's a lot of exploding building and, and literally people like throwing themselves to their death out of giant buildings and leave it on for a week because that's because <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what we had to deal with because and that's the other thing that you know a lot of people don't understand is like this 24-hour news cycle so not only did if you're old enough you watch that live 
but then the news media was kind enough to show it to you nonstop, 24-7 for weeks. Yeah, and like the Daily Show came back on after two weeks and the opening was just John Stewart crying. You know, like there was nothing you could do. You couldn't get away from 9-11. It was everywhere and affected everything in media. Bar none. You could not escape 9-11. So I think the ending sequence of seeing a giant building shooting fire out as someone's falling out of the building, totally understandable why they didn't want to air that. But I had to know for certain that this was true. So, I went to the tried and true refuge of the nerd, the internet forum. Specifically, Toon Zone forums, which have been up for almost 20 years. So I went all the way back to 2001, and I discovered that on September 15th, the user Mad Hatter posted a link, which is now dead, unfortunately, showing that Cowboy Bebop and Ballad of Fallen Angels had been removed from tomorrow night's programming block. Uh, to tell you really how long ago it was, this one person left this bizarro comment. Would you like to read it, Steve? Yeah, sure. This is from an internet forum on September 15th, 2001. I will do my best internet forum voice. Oh, this is insane. First, they're taking out the Spider-Man trailer in theaters for sensitivity for the World Trade Center, and now this? Well, we have one more comment. Why don't you read that one, too? Sure. I bought the first DVD, but I wasn't impressed enough to buy another. You could never say that now. You could never go on the internet and be like, I didn't really like Cowboy Bebop. I don't know. I'd be pretty pissed if I paid 30 bucks for five episodes. It was a different time, man. It really was. From what I can tell, Cowboy Bebop possibly slotted in an episode of Tenchi Muyo and Sailor Moon as a substitution for that week only, because I saw someone saying that they liked Sailor Moon and Tenchi Muyo, but they were pissed. So it's a guess. But one interesting fact about Adult Swim back in the day is that they aired on Sunday night, and they repeated on Thursday night, the exact same block. And contrary to what we said last week, one person mentions that on Thursday night, two days after 9-11, they still aired Gateway Shuffle again with the Echo Terrorists. Huh. Kind of crazy. Anyway, for about a week, there were rumors that Bebop would return on October 4th. However, Adult Swim would jump ahead to the ninth episode, skipping episode 5, 6, 7, and 8. That turned out to be wrong, but oh my god, people were freaking out in the comments. <laughs> anyway, it eventually returned on September 23rd, and they aired this episode. So don't tell me we don't ever do original research here. This episode was directed by Tetsuya Watanabe. Yes, he sounds like Shinichiro Watanabe, but in Japan, Watanabe is basically the same name as Smith. Oh, didn't know that. Uh, this is also the only episode directed by Tetsuya, but he went on to direct six episodes of the anime Big O, which is a really awesome show, including three episodes on the second season. And in 2007, he was the series director for the divisive show Strange Strategic Armor Infantry and has been bouncing around directing a couple of episodes of different anime series such as Idol Master Xenoglase, Orimo, My Sister Can't Be This Cute, and Horizon in the Middle of Nowhere. Stop laughing, Steve. <laughs> Damn it, anime. And he actually worked on 1998's Brain Powered, which coincidentally had music from Yoko Kano. This episode was written by Michiko Yokote, who we last saw on Stray Dog Strut, and who will go on to write six more episodes. Let's see if we can find any comparisons between the Silly Dog episode and this. Uh, not really. Okay, Steve. We're finally here. The title to the episode is Ballad of Fallen Angels. And I swear to God, I tried to look up stuff. There are too many artists. Mm -hmm. What do you got? So I guess some people have been citing Aerosmith's song, Fallen Angels, uh, given that they have a later episode named after another Aerosmith song. The problem with that is Fallen Angels, the song, appeared on the Aerosmith album Nine Lives, which, aside from being a colossal pile of shit, was released in 1997. And yeah, so no self-respecting Aerosmith fan listens to their music after they got sober. Fuck that. Also, I'm going to go ahead and say, like, like the whole run of 
1970s Aerosmith, you know, when you got like rocks, toys in the attic. That's all fine. Oh, it's amazing. After that, fuck off. <laughs> oh, well, okay, I'll be honest. Oh, you're going to hate me for this. I like Jaded. That's a good song. Jade is a good pop song. So right, can we can we have a brief uh like can we have, put on some hold music or something so I can literally like flay you? <laughs> I can't help it. Jesus Christ! You're just too j- j- jaded, Steve. <laughs> oh my God! I'm gonna throw you in a vat of acid. Whoa, that'd be X-rated. Mm. <laughs> okay. Other people have said that the episode is named after the 1960s group Fallen Angels, best known for their pop psychedelia. Uh, But this also seems unlikely because so far all title references are to songs and styles, not bands themselves. Honestly, when I was watching it, uh, the first thing that popped in my head was the Wong Kar Wai movie, Fallen Angels, which she's a Hong Kong filmmaker, uh, which is a movie, and I haven't seen it in about a decade, but... It's about a contract killer who falls in love with his partner and he's trying to get out of contract killing. So it's about him trying to get away from this business and also like dealing with the emotional ramifications of being a contract killer and like being in love with your partner. And I think thematically it shares a lot with this particular Bebop episode, but I don't know, like, it's such a close timeline, (laughs) you know, that it seems kind of odd, especially because they have a tendency to reach pretty far back into the past to come up with their their episode titles. If anything, I think this may be one of the episodes where it's not a reference to a particular musical style or a pop song, and it might actually be just a reference to the episode itself, but I don't know. Okay, well, here's what was kind of popular in Japan. This is just me going on some stuff right here. What about King Crimson? They were a popular group in Japan. They even did a live tour in 2003. They had a song called Fallen Angel that was released on 1974. That's kind of in the sweet spot. Uh, I mean, I guess, except for the this episode, its use of color really emphasizes reds. So maybe there's the King Crimson tie. I'm reaching, though. Okay, well, what about 1998's Fallen Angel by Poison? Funny enough, this is one of their few songs that's not a power ballad. Are, are you are you talking shit about unskinny bop? Come on, man. <laughs> I like Poison. <laughs> They're fun. Okay, so I, I just want to say to all the listeners out there, Colin has admitted to liking the song Jaded by Aerosmith, as well as the band Poison. I'm really just, I, I'm open to different musical styles. Styles, man. All right. Well, according to Colin, the most likely candidate is actually uh, Ronnie James Dio. Yes, that Dio. I have a theory as to why I think this is the reference. This is where they got it from. Number one, Watanabe loves heavy metal, as we'll find out in a future episode. Uh, number two, Ronnie James Dio was huge in the 80s in Japan. Just Huge. So in 1983, he drops this album called Holy Diver, which of course has Holy Diver and Rainbow in the Dark. Super awesome album, huge hits. Then in 1985, he drops Sacred Heart, one of the best known albums by Dio, the group, and Ryan James Dio. It has Rock and Roll Children on it, which of course you might remember from the music video where he's looking over a crystal ball. Dio is a giant fucking dork, in case you're wondering. He's no, like, he's really short. <laughs> he's, a, he's a tiny, tiny man. He, he's like if Dungeons and Dragons had a guitar. So anyway, he drops that album in 1985, the exact same month that Dio headlines Super Rock 85, which was this music festival inside of Shibuya Lions Stadium in Japan, and Sting was there, Foreigner was there, something like 30,000 people were there, but Dio was the closing act in that Japanese stadium, a huge deal. So if you lived in Japan and you had the slightest interest in Western music, you knew who Ryan James Dio was, and you knew what Sacred Heart was, and by proxy, you knew what Fallen Angels was. Japan Love Dio. 
Owen Deal was the first person to popularize the the devil horns. Mm-hmm. He is he is unapologetically cheesy, so I love Dio. Okay, can we finally get to the episode? Yes. We fade in high above city skyscrapers as sunlight glistens. For the first time in the series, our establishing shot is not in space. And I think it's really important. This is going to be a far more grounded story, even though it's going <laughs> to it's going to stretch credibility later on. This is the most grounded story we've had yet. And here's something we're going to be repeating a lot today. Even if the audience isn't completely aware of it, this episode is going to break the establishing mold over and over again to draw in its audience. So our establishing shot is a building, but the first action that we see is a thumb being pierced by a blade to release a droplet of blood. Once again, this is going to be repeating throughout the episode over and over and over again. Blood blades, and hands. We're going to be talking about hands a lot this episode. Uh, This blood, however, is being shed for peace. Uh, We see the thumbprint being pressed into a contract that names Mao Yenrai of the Red Dragon Incorporated and Carlos of White Tiger Incorporated. This is meant to be the final bloodshed to end a mob war. Uh, We then cut to a long shot of the room where this is taking place, and two-thirds of the room is just bathed in white light except for the last third corner. It's starkly dominated in darkness. It's an awkward diagonal slice. It lets us know that this can't end well. Carlos is dressed completely in white, and he faces the light, but with sunglasses so we can't see his eyes. Uh, And Mao is dressed completely in black and is covered in shadow, so their faces are obscured to us. We know that the creators of Cowboy Bebop were influenced heavily by 1960s, 1970s uh, Japanese noir. And this is kind of a throw that back to that, but also it kind of, it fits with the time because Yakuza films and neo-noir was super, super popular during this period. So you had directors like Takashi Miike, uh, who was making literally like 50 movies a year. About these, you know, you know, Japanese triad, blah, 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 Yakuza, mafia, that type of stuff. And and this is very in line with that. Like, this is the type of thing you see this in uh, movies like Ichi the Killer, which I think was based on a manga, if I'm not mistaken. Look at me knowing about anime. Ha <laughs> ha uh, You know, and he did series like uh, Black Triad Society, uh, Dead or Alive, not related to Jiggly Boob fighting games, just so you know. <laughs> Same type of thing, though, where this is a very common type of scene where you're like, oh, these two gangs are finally, you know, making peace with each other. But then in the back of your head, you're going, "Mm, something tells me this isn't going to last. And and even if you don't have those references, you know that this can't end well because that's not how stories begin. Stories don't begin with peace happening. That's something that happens in a third act. And we're going to see this over and over and over in this episode. Every scene starts in the third act. So even if you're missing these visual cues, their conversation is really tense. If you read the actual dialogue, they're celebrating an agreement and a possible friendship. At this point, Carlos says that he can't believe he's breaking bread with a capo from the Red Syndicate. Obviously, Mao is not a capo. He is the head of the syndicate. But I think this is almost like a nostalgic term. They've known each other for a long time. Mao mentions that their chef cooks a Cantonese meal, but then he says, don't worry, the food won't be poisoned. No more betrayals. That's nice. You know, when somebody says that, you're like, mm, I bet it's poisoned. We are meant to see the end of this conflict, but with every bit of dialogue, tension is being raised, even if that's not the uh, character's intent. 
Oh, and this is brought to a boiling point when Morrow is looking out the window and watching the ship, and he says, thank God, I can finally relax and take a little breather. This is like those cop movies, you know, this is my final day on the force. Yeah, it is interesting, and you mentioned this before, that this almost feels like if this was a happy ending to a movie, this would be the final scene, but it's our opening scene, so we know that... Uh, well, in order to escalate conflict, something tells us that, you know, this this probably isn't going to end well. If you're watching along with this and you have maybe your DVD or you're watching on Funimation.com or you're watching on Hulu.com, right when the ship explodes, I want you to like pause or go in slow motion or do whatever you can. Because check this out. They go through a series of shots very, very, very quickly. We see the explosion. We see Mao's reaction. We see a bird screeching. We see a long shot of the falling debris looking up at the building with the debris falling down, like the darkness is starting to consume a pink sky. We see a sword being put to Mao's throat, and we see a pool of blood next to a bloody hand and a foot stepping over it. That's all in about five to six seconds. It's a lot, and this is all in movement. This is not still images like uh, we usually see. Yeah, it's a lot of quick cuts. <laughs> it's a lot going on in this one. This is, this is one of those episodes where you can't look down for a second because you're going to miss a lot. Everything we just witnessed was for nothing. We have seen everything uh, undone. That's all in five seconds. We see our first shot of Vicious, and his back is to the camera so we don't see his face. Well, I'm just glad that Sephiroth was able to get work after Final Fantasy VII. You know, I really do wonder about that because Final Fantasy VII was released in late 1997, and and I wonder how much of that was taken directly from him. Of course, Sephiroth himself was influenced by a, a myriad of Japanese characters. Oh, sure. Well, he's like the prototypical, like when I think of anime and or JRPGs, like he's the bad guy. What I love so much about this is that uh, Vicious materializes through chaos. Those five things that we just saw and now Vicious suddenly exists. It's almost like a spell. Now, right here, right before Mao dies... He says that this is pointless bloodshed. He's not begging for his own life. He's begging for his syndicate. I think that says a lot about Mao. Yeah, so this is interesting because for the first time, we sort of see how Spike and Bebop are related to everything that's going on here. So, uh, you know, Mao's begging for his life and, uh, you know, he gets his throat cut. How gross is that? That sound. The villains have been sort of over the top and even silly at times. This is a lot more serious. Like, shit gets real, for lack of a better term. So... You know, like, and there's all these quick cuts to, like, you know, the growing pupil of the red-eyed bird, and then there's this pool of blood that's collecting on the floor, and it's just just really intense shit, and you're like, oh, man, were we just watching a puppy dog chase a few episodes? Like, what's going on here? We don't even hear Vicious say anything. It, it, this was already a done deal. He was going to kill Mao from the moment. Yeah, from, from the moment. Yeah, exactly. And so the way that this all connects back to, you know, the characters that we know is... Uh, as Vicious is leaving, uh, Mao's final words are, you know, if Spike were here, you never would have done this. The next shot, it's the Stone Angels, one in dark and one in light. It's Vicious and Spike. Vicious and Spike. There you go. And then it's just boom, title shot, no music. And and this is a crazy cold open. (laughs) Just the sucker punch of going from the first four episodes to seeing a really serious situation and that being informed, if Spike were here, he could have changed this. Like, just the idea that he would even be included in the circumstance is weird, but the idea that he could influence it so greatly that everyone in the room knows who he's talking about. That's crazy. Yeah, and it's important to note, too, that up until this point, we don't know a lot about Spike and what we do know about him from, you know, in terms of his characteristics is we know he's a little bit goofy and he can be standoffish, but he's got this like cool, I'm kind of a badass thing going on. It's it's hard to picture Spike as we know him as a character so far 
fitting into this world that we just experienced. Four episodes in, you're starting to get into the rhythm of the show and get a feel for it. And this is a big swerve. This is not what you really expect as an audience member. So the next scene, uh, we see the Bebop floating on the surface of the water. Uh, so we've gone from the tallest of the skyscrapers down to the ocean level. What is the first thing that we see? What is the first action? It is hands shuffling a deck of cards. Every single time, every single time we go to a new scene, we're going to be cutting to a hand. And we'll talk about that later. But it's Spike's hands and he's moving the cards. He's kind of doing it nervously. And we see Jet is tapping his foot as he says, I'm not ready for this or I'm not up for this. He says, fine, all right, I don't want to bother you. I have no other choice. So once again, we're at the third act. We get a really wonderful overhead shot of Spike and Jet in the living room with the only animation being Ayn moving around just a little bit. But there's the overhead ceiling fan that keeps creating a barricade between Spike and Jet over and over again. It almost seems to be pushing them away from each other. Uh, and we get this amazing exchange. What are you trying to hide from me? So how'd you mess up your arm, huh, Jet? What does that have to do with it? Nothing at all. So when are you going to answer my question? When you answer mine. Where each of them knows that they're not going to talk about why they are the way they are. That was part of the agreement, you can tell, that they've gotten along because they don't. They've, they've remained very surface level. Which is fun, too, because that's how we've experienced them as audience members, too, watching them. It's just, you know, these are two guys with very distinct personalities, but just like we don't know a lot about who they are outside of very superficial stuff. They don't share those things with each other. I love what happens next, right in between them, right in between their argument. Faye opens up the door, so we have someone that is that is being crippled by their past. They have something that they must do. We have another person that is hiding their past. They don't want to share information. And we have Faye come in, complaining about the door, not being big enough for all the things she bought. Just this frivolous complaint uh, that just totally frees up the mood of the room. But I do want to talk about this for a moment. Let's think back to previous episodes. Whenever Jet's like, let's do this or let's do that, Spike is lazy. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go and capture small fries unless he finds out that he can eat some food there. He doesn't want to walk iron around and capture the person. He wants to just be lazy. And this is the first time where he's like, nope, we're going. And Jet's like, no, no, we're not. <laughs> I don't even think this is juxtaposition. This is just a complete subversion of their uh, relationship dynamic. Of course, uh, Faye gets a phone call with some guy that's like, oh, I have some information for you. And this causes a playing card, which Spike was playing with previously, to fall to the ground and she picks it up and it is the Ace of Spades. So yeah, two things to kind of key in on here. Uh, the Ace of Spades is, of course, like numerically the highest card in a deck. And second, it's known as the Death card because spades were originally weapons that were later used to dig graves. So it's symbolically polarized as really all or nothing. Uh, but of course, we already know that uh, the bounty will never be collected. Have they gotten anything so far? No. And, and this is this is a really interesting take on that because normally it's like they're at least trying to get the money. But in this case, they're like, oh, we're not going to get the bounty, but they're super into it. By the way, when we go through this, we're going to be talking about how they use animation because they are very reserved. They pick and choose where they drop animation. And every time they do, it's either for something really cool and violent or something that establishes the character, such as Faye trying to park her zip craft right in front of this limousine and people diving out of the way in front of the opera house. Uh, by the way, the floating hologram banners read Calzi del Isaac, which means stockings of the Isaac in Italian. And that means absolutely nothing. I googled it and I could not find a single thing for it. Also amazing is just seeing more Faye of being a con woman walking up and saying, oh, you know, I'm here to see someone really important. And then not even letting the guy say Mao's name. Of course, she got the information from the guy that called in, and uh, we don't need to see that exchange, and bam, she's right into the storyline. We return to the Bebop, and we see Jet in his natural state, brooding and angry at other people, 
and drinking a pipiu, which is like a Pepsi with a yin yang symbol. So this is another part that is really telling about the relationship between Jet and Spike, because even though Jet was just like, I'm not going to help you. I have a metal arm. (laughs) He's still like looking up information on whatever the cowboy bebop internet is on something called deep space. So he's basically like doing this research to, you know, help out or, or learn more about whatever's going on with Spike. And also, if you pause for a second, uh, you can see that his login name on it is Jet Engine. Aww. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but like whatever he's looking up is like password protected. So there's no net neutrality on Mars, in case you were wondering. Boo. We do get a little Ein scene. This is not a very Ein heavy episode, probably because it's very serious. Uh, but Ein's getting all worked up because I don't know. He like, he's really into encryption. I don't I don't understand. Because he's a data dog. But Jet does learn that Mao is dead. And I, I want to just say this really, 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 really quick because uh, this is so cool. We see the exact same discovery by all three characters and it tells us about their personality. Jet sits back, he uses the internet, he uses a little bit of uh, cracking and he finds out that Mao is dead. Spike, he's going headfirst to also find out what happened to Mao and Faye's trying to trick her way in. She's like in between. She's trying to slyly find out the information. So in all three instances, we just see the exact same information, but that's not important. We're learning about the characters. We rejoin the opera house, and here's something I never noticed until this viewing. There's a long pause at one of the violin players looking towards the private balcony. He's actually the same person that called Faye earlier in the episode. So all along, this was probably a setup to catch Spike or Jet and lure Spike in. Uh, the performance begins as we see a valet quietly flipping a key in an empty hallway while one of Vicious's men approaches him, and we'll learn why later. And of course, Faye attempts to get into the room, but within two seconds, she has a gun to her back. How great is it, that look on her face? It's not, I'm scared, it's not anything, it's just, oh god, not again. And literally, two seconds after that, we are looking directly at a porno magazine. (laughs) Yeah, this is another one of those super quick cuts where I I happened to, like, look down because my cat was doing something cute, and then I had to rewind because I was just like, oh, God, what did I miss? How do we go from, like, serious opera scene, brooding darkness to, oh, kids looking at porn? Make sure to rewatch those scenes, though, because what we see is a gun with a hand. It's just isolated. All we see is the hand. Two seconds later, we see the magazine and a big hand holding it. Whenever we want to establish action, we go to isolated hands. I guess all that porn is password protected on the internet. Yeah, it is It is kind of quaint that these kids are like, we can't look at porn on the internet, so we buy porno mags. Do they buy porno mags? Oh, not exactly. Dude, how good is the animation when they just look at her and try and slightly put it in there? By shoving them up their shirts and then making like a uh, stressed out anime noise. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, one of the kids there has a backwards hat and a darker complexion. Please remember him, the kid with the backwards hat and the darker complexion. Remember that kid, the kid with the darker complexion and a backwards hat. Remember this kid. Remember, remember, remember him. Moving on. Right as they put those under their shirts, uh, the woman that we now know is named Annie just says, put them back. And they have to dart out there. I love that shot of, uh, of the kid with the darker complexion landing right on his chin. But of course, Annie just lifts him up and just puts him in a headlock. <laughs> And the other kid crashes into Spike, who, without any sort of effort, has somehow stolen the magazine and is looking at it while the kid tries to punch him and he's dodging. Uh, I seriously think there was a higher budget for these episodes because when Annie gets both the kids into a headlock, you see those kids struggling to get out and they have different, they both have different tactics. This is like, again, this is such a weird juxtaposition to the rest of the episode because it's like this goofball moment where like... So Annie, the shopkeeper, chases after the kids who stole porn, and then she puts them both in a headlock, and there's this moment where they both realize they're in a headlock next to her tits, which are big, and they're just like, ooh. 
Ooh, boobies. I didn't even think about that, but that actually makes sense. Yeah, that's, it's just this moment you're like, ah, oh, damn it, anime. But of course, uh, Annie sees Spike right in front of her. And I, the, the way that they drew the realization on her face with the, with the pupils growing narrow, it's just wonderful. And she completely drops the kids and they get away. That's actually going to repeat a lot. If you look, there's moments where something really serious is happening and uh, people are just being goofballs, like you say. We're back at Annie's shop and wouldn't you know it, the first thing we see is a hand holding a glass. Whenever Spike is in the scene, we see the hand from a omnipotent viewpoint, just a floating camera. Whenever Spike is not in the scene, we see hands in a first-person perspective, at least at first. And Annie is grabbing that drink because, as we'll see, her and reality don't exactly get along. Spike even recommends that Annie should chill out on the booze as she casually says that Spike died three years ago because that's how it works around here. Even though he says, no, I'm alive. She goes, nope, they're not. You're dead. You died three years ago. And this completely shuts up Spike. He has nothing to say to that. Uh, he has no comeback like he usually would. He just scratches his face and stares at a photo of Mao, Annie, and an unknown man in happier times. Looks right at her and says, Anastasia, which is a bit like Anastasia, the most famous person, of course, being the Grand Duchess of Russia before she was killed in the revolution in the early 20th century. <laughs> that's a hell of an aside. I, I'm just saying, I think that's not a coincidence because- oh, I think it is. I think he just calls her that because it's more formal and he's trying to get her attention. Well, ironically, there was a person named Annie Anderson who appeared years later claiming to be the real Anastasia in hiding, though after she died, it was proven in a DNA test that she was a complete and utter imposter. But back to the show. She does not appreciate being called Anastasia and immediately says only three people can call her that name. Well, it's like when people call me Steven instead of Steve. It's like, don't do that unless you're my mom and you're angry at me. Ooh, 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 I'm ooh, awkward. Maybe I'm reading into it too much, like I am everything in this episode, but seeing that there's yeah, there's, <laughs> there's Spike is there and there's two people in that photo and she says only three people can call her Anastasia and he clearly knows the name. I think she's rejecting being called that name because it would force her to recognize that Spike is actually alive. And she's not going to do that. That is not how she functions. And I love this because we're, we're, we're starting to build a world out of shadows. Like relationships have rules. And because we simply can't or really should not delve into this relationship completely, we just have a moment where Spike deliberately breaks a rule. And Annie rejects his attempt uh, to reconcile. She's not going to be rude, but she's going to refuse any betrayal of those social laws. Spike is dead, and her name is Annie, and that's all it's going to be. But of course, Spike persists by asking her what happened to Mao, and we return to Annie's hand, if we're going to be talking about that a lot, trembling with the glass in it. Now, I've seen some people online say that this is because Annie is afraid that Spike is going to go after Vicious. What? It's the most bare-bones analysis. But I don't buy that theory. This is a woman who is talking to a dead person and acknowledges that she's talking to a dead person. This is how she copes with reality. She disassociates, and she, but she still says how she feels. But when Spike asks about Mao, that's something that's really recent, and she has not mentally prepared herself on how she feels about that. So it's all coming out at once. Uh, we rejoin Faye on the balcony and she is biting her lip and holding back tears and some really fantastic animation. And I hate to destroy this great scene because I'm praising everything, but there's some issues with this episode. Faye in the English dub says Mao Tai Jin. Mao Tai Jin. What's the reason for this? What's the reason for this? That's a great question, Faye, because Tai Jin is a fucking honorific from Japanese, which you should never, ever, 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 ever put in your English dub. Wait, what? Explain what that means, because I don't know what that means. Well, Steve-san, there's many different honorifics in Japan. In fact, uh, maybe you could teach me a few things, Steve-sensei, if you know what I mean. It's basically giving somebody a title. There's more than Mr. and Mrs. and Ma'am. You're connecting a terminology that says 
who that person is. Like if you were eight years old, you'd be Steve Kuhn. Or if you were a prisoner, you'd be Steve Jukesha. I didn't know that. Is this why, is this why you always call me Senpai? <laughs> yes. God damn it, how'd you know that? <laughs> so yes, the fact that they actually put an honorific in an English dub is such a big no-no and is so weird and they will never do it again. I don't know why they did. And I think it basically, and I'm not actually familiar with uh, Tai Jin, but I think it means she's scared. So this is kind of an interesting scene because... <laughs> It's kind of gross and weird and unsettling in a lot of ways. So you got, you you know, Faye dressed to the nines here and she she shows up and then this guard arrives and he's got her zip craft key and he already knows her name and background, knows everything about her. They're they're like, hey, come on in. We've been waiting for you. And then they just sit her down next to the corpse of Mao, who apparently is at the opera because, you know, you got to bring your corpse to the opera. It's a real weekend at Bernie's situation. So they, they easily could have used like first person or something and showed a reaction, um, which is, I, I don't know, it seems like anime shorthand. Like they do that a lot. They do that a lot in Cowboy Bebop. Well, you're, you're more of a fan of horror films. I felt like this was coming from something maybe in the 70s and I can't place what, but just when they, they show you it for a second and then they stop, they pull the camera back like they do with Faye's face. And then they just go right back into it. Uh, this whole thing, and maybe it's the opera house setting, but the whole opera scene and, and Mao sitting there with his throat slit and everything that's going on, it actually reminds me a little bit of, and this is, it, it's a Dario Argento movie called Opera, mm. uh, which also has like uh, ravens and shit in it, which, you know, we have the blackbirds in here, so maybe that's what made me think of it too. I guess, you know, according to the internet, the internet says that this is a scene lifted directly from Marathon Man. From 1976. Never seen it. Yeah, I, I was getting more of like an Italian giallo vibe, but uh, I haven't seen Marathon Man. But we'll take the internet's word for it. When has the internet ever been wrong? And of course, we've seen characters like this from far, far, far lesser works, which I think kind of taints Vicious' character a little bit. Luckily, they don't go into any of the pathetic... Well, there's not a lot of subtlety with Vicious either. His name is literally Vicious. Now, that's actually an interesting point. Is his name Vicious? Because when he says his name is Vicious, we cut to uh, Faye and her eyes get really, really big. I'm wondering, is Vicious a, a, a galaxy-famous gangster? Does she go, oh, God, I've heard about him from the news? Or is she just like, oh, God, that's not a people name. You know, that's a gangster name. Yeah, I mean, if, there, if there's some, like, like I don't know, lanky creep with long silver hair and a big-ass sword, and he sneers at me, goes, ah, Vicious, ah. yeah, I'm going to be fucking freaked out. And I take him to actually be a realistic character, as bizarre as that might sound, but if you, if you heard about some guy, you know, over in mainland China who was part of the triad called Vicious who killed people with a sword, why not? I believe it. Either way, we have learned that Vicious is so committed to the past that he is so driven to continue this triad war. He is not willing to, to advance time one iota that he will take a dead body and take it to its expected appointments. The status quo is not going to be challenged, which is really telling because Spike talks about his past catching up with him. Uh, Vicious is literally trying to make sure they go back to the past. Oh, and by the way, right when he says Vicious, we hear the audience clapping too, right when it goes to credits. That was the first act. I mean, that was the first half of the show. So a lot of stuff happens. And before we move on, we have to talk about the opera scene in first person, a hand raised to the light. And of course the song is Ave Maria which marks the first time Yoko Kano has adapted someone else's work, which is kind of funny because itself is an adaption of an adaption of an adaptation. Yeah, we'll go with that. 
Now this is a bit complicated, but please stick with me. There's a lot of songs called Ave Maria with the exact same lyrics. The one we're listening to right now is the most common version. However, it was written by Franz Schubert under the title Hail Mary in 1825 with entirely different lyrics. Originally, it was an adaptation of Sir Walter Scott's 1810 epic poem, The Lady of the Lake. Now, the song was always about a prayer to the Virgin Mary, as is the current version. And in fact, it included the words Ave Maria as the opening line. But it was part of a greater narrative performance. It became so popular that eventually its lyrics were replaced by the other song called Ave Maria, which itself is based off of a prayer, which itself is based off of a handful of quotes from the New Testament of the Bible. That's a lot of stuff. And I don't blame them for changing the way that the song sounded because the original version sucks. It sucks so much. Uh, that being said, this performance and arrangement and the engineering of this version is still my favorite. And according to the Wikipedia page, it was performed by Jersey Natig, accompanied by the Warsaw Philharmonic Orchestra and conducted by Anthony Inglis. Inglis actually worked with Kano before on Macross Plus and Escaflone, and the pieces were played as a performance with the conductor, not a click track. And they're just so important when it comes to music. That's why I think a lot of movie soundtracks suck. Why is that important? Because. Uh, when someone is up on stage and they're conducting the music, we've, we've seen this before, or maybe you've seen Bugs Bunny do it. Mm -hmm. uh, they're waving their hands and then they point and they do all these things. They're controlling the music. The music is working with him. Now that's rather than actually following a traditional uh, beat pattern, which when you watch something like, you know, the making of Halo 3 soundtrack, everyone's got headphones on and they're listening to a click track. It's one, two, three, four. You must play exactly like this. And this is when the strings come in. Which is why when you've listened to like Marvel soundtracks, it's very, very generic. There's no feel to it. Huh. I did not even know that was a thing. That's cool. Which is why Yoko Khan did not know about rhythm. So it's treated like real classical music, which is why this sounds better than anything you've heard in movies in 10 years. We're back. And what do we see? The first shot in Annie's shop. I was going to say, probably, probably this hand thing. A hand putting a gun on the counter. It's not first person because Spike is there. We see hands picking up bullets. Once again, not in first person. Annie has closed up the shop and Spike collects the gun. All she asks is that Spike stay away from Vicious before lamenting that Spike won't listen to her. And Spike just says, sorry, go back and watch the animation on this. Because she says, please don't get tangled up with Vicious. And you see for a split second, Spike looks up and looks right in her eyes. And then she looks down like, oh God. It's all done so beautifully. These characters don't even move alike. I love that when they get that down. And this is more about Annie's character. Like we just said, she's talking to a dead person. Her name is Annie. And even though she's handing a gun, she's handing ammunition to Spike. She says, hey, whatever you do, don't go after Vicious. What other reason would he be doing this? Why else would he need the ammunition? She knows this. I'm interested too, and I, I don't, they don't really go into detail on this, and maybe they will in future episodes, but I'm interested in Annie's relationship to Vicious and Spike and why she's so invested in the both of them and why she's so like emotionally scarred to the point where she's getting fucking blitzed in the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> she drinks a lot in this episode. I'm concerned about her. Even if that was like a really good beer, like a malt liquor, she would be done. Let's talk about how they don't use animation for a second. Because when Annie is scolding him, we just see a still drawing of Spike with his eyes closed and he's just smiling. Like he misses this. He misses being scolded and being like, why don't you listen to me? He's, it, this is uh, nostalgic for him. And that's so telling about the character. Well, and we also know that he has issues with authority and, and women. So uh, I think he's got some mommy issues. This next scene, I just, I can't, I can't handle it, dude. I just cannot handle it because Spike finally opens up his eyes when, when Annie announces that Mao used all of his power. Because we've seen how powerful he was earlier. He's at the very, very, very top floor of this organization. He had sent people all around the galaxy looking for Spike because Mao believed he was still alive. 
even though everyone told Mao he wasn't. Now he's finally back, and Mao is gone, and it's just so sad. Of course, this is accompanied by the amazing song, Waltz for Zizi, which is one of my favorite songs in the entire soundtrack. By the way, that scene we were just talking about, they used two drawings for that scene after he opens up his eyes. We just see uh, uh, the drawing of Spike realizing what he's done, and then we see the photograph. And that photograph is from earlier. So they reused a shot. So brilliant. And it never betrays the emotional state of the scene. All right. So our, our girl, drunk ass Annie, uh, <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Annie living the same lifestyle I live. Uh, <laughs> you closing up the porno shop to have a few drinks. Yeah. Some people pour one out for their dead homies. Uh, Annie pours one in her mouth for her dead homie, Mao. So, you know, you get this nice little uh, gesture of gratitude and sorrow for her fallen friend. And, you know, she takes it back because that's how Annie rolls. Did you miss it? Oh, your fucking hand shit, right? Yeah, because that last scene, if you, you have to look really close before Spike takes the drink, yeah. it's the hand reaching for a drink and another hand taking it away. Oh. This is fucking intentional. The moment, now follow me on this because we're going to talk about this a lot. The moment that Spike reaches over and interrupts from then on, all of his examples of hands will be in first person. Hmm. Stick with me here. So Annie pours the drink. She's going to drink it. And she's, Spice says, no, if I'm if it's for Mao, I'm going to drink it myself. Mm -hmm. This is when he starts making real choices. So before we get to the, the church, mm -hmm. okay, I, I, which, by the way, I'm excited about because everyone that I talked to was just like, oh, just wait till you get to episode five. Why won't you give them a blanket, Steve? No, that's, that's what they sound like. <laughs> all my friends sound like that. And, you know, I, I've certainly enjoyed this episode. And it's been cool just learning more about the characters and watching these characters kind of grow a little bit, but the church is where it all comes together. But before we talk about the church scene, tell me about Vicious's bird. Okay, here we go. So Vicious has a weird bird, a very weird bird. And apparently some people think it's a cormorant, a bird with a lot of cultural symbolism. Christians actually viewed it as a harbinger of nobility and sacrifice. John Milton's Paradise Lost took a far different interpretation with Satan transforming into a comrade so he can watch Adam and Eve and the Garden of Evil. That seems to align a little bit more with Vicious's character. I just said the Garden of Evil. I meant the Garden of Eden. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a Scandinavian myth about comrades being a disguised spirit of deceased loved ones. But one of the character artists for Cowboy Bebop, Kawamoto, called the bird an alien without even saying what kind it was. So even the artist is like, what is this bird? Yeah, just a fucked up weird bird. <laughs> Some actually say it's a reference to uh, Captain Harlock's bird. That's a 1970s anime, so that seems like a pretty good idea. So yeah, some people think it's a Kamarat, but there's a big problem with that. They have green eyes, not red eyes. But <laughs> don't worry, I'm going to be a stupid nerd for a moment. Birds are actually some of the best subjects for evolutionary biologists because they have the fastest physical adaptations within a couple of generations. Uh, and in fact, there's a flightless Kamarat whose population inhabits a small island without native predators. They apparently flew there, and because they had no reason to leave, because they had a lot of food, they just stuck around, and their wings shrunk by two-thirds, and they lost the ability to fly. But genetically speaking, they are the exact same species. And their eyes actually change color from a turquoise to a neon blue. So hey, if we take this Kamarat and we put it in outer space... Who's to say it's not going to get bigger and its eyes won't turn red? That makes perfect sense. I mean, for me, it's just like if you're a creepy, murderous anime villain with a big sword, of course you're going to have a fucking little bird that's a total evil dick too, you know? And it's just like you're good James Bond villains. Like you need an eye patch, you need a creepy animal, maybe a cat to pet, something like that. Ooh, do you think they kind of took that from there? I don't know. I, I just, maybe just because I think the, the Bond films were so good at just establishing archetypes for villains uh but yeah like it's just it adds to him because yeah he's a total creepy goth weirdo of course he's got his goth bird so we're back on the bebop what's the first thing we're gonna see spike's hand 
going into the fridge, disconnected from his body. I want to make this very clear. These are close-ups of hands. This is not just something about, look, his hand is moving. No, the camera is focusing on the hand itself. Spike is reaching into a fridge. And of course, there's no food in there. They don't have food. They never have food in Bebop. Of course, instead, there's a handgun inside of the fridge. We have a brown paper lunch bag. No sandwiches in there. It's full of grenades. Now, we cut to Spike's hands in third person, uh, loading a gun. And then in first person, we see him lining up with the pistol sight, moving it from left to right, much like Faye did when she saw Mao. Uh, But the gun meets Jet with his arms folded, who is there to confront him, uh, telling Spike what he knows. Mao is dead. Spike already knows that too. Everyone knows that. But when Spike announces that he has a debt to pay off, Jet connects the dots. You see it in his face. He goes, oh my God. Because he begins to realize he's related to this entire scenario. And that's the very first time he's ever learned anything about Spike's past. You can tell. And so immediately he just goes, hey, I lost my arm because I was too gung-ho. Like he has this... He feels a debt himself, like he immediately has to confess his past. So what does Jet do when he reveals this information? He takes his biological hand and wraps it around the wrist of his robotic hand. While he's telling this information, he's looking at his prosthetic hand. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think that's the point of this, is the director saying that hands are us. Hands are what we do. Hands are how we change uh, the world around us and how we interact. Uh, They are choices. They are commitments. And they determine our future. When Jet does this, he is connecting the past with today and recalling the arm that he no longer has because it made a bad choice. Spike even admits that he doesn't want to do this right in front of him. He says, I don't don't, don't want to do this, but, you know, I have to. And just like before, (laughs) Faye comes on the, uh, she, she makes that phone call and comes right in between them, right during this serious moment, just like those kids looking at that porno magazine, just that big fake, oh my God, you have to save me smile. Does this charm actually work on anyone? She seems to always try and charm people and it never works. No, it seems like she just aggravates people. <laughs> it must be like a nervous tick or something. Yeah. I'm not a big Star Wars person, but obviously that had to influence Cowboy Bebop. Do you think this is trying to make her look a little bit like Princess Leia in Return of the Jedi? I mean, this is just standard issue, like damsel in distress stuff like oh i'm in a sexy dress and my hands are tied above my head i i don't know my lady bits are everywhere i think it's kind of undercutting that uh that trope a little bit because she's like you know i know you guys don't like me can you save me like it's not about love she's not a prize in this situation Mm -hmm. (laughs) she just happens to be there now jed is like nope nobody asked you to go off on your own he's about to shut off the call what do we see close up jet's hand about to press uh, the off button, Spike's hand, much like the glass, intervenes and stops him and asks where she is. We cut to the outside of the church with crows, or possibly ravens, swirling around at its peak. Uh, Go back and look at the long shot of the room at the very beginning. This is repeated over here. The darkness is growing. It's not a perfect slice. It's this off-kilter slice. Now the light is shrunk and the darkness is dominating as he walks towards the church. And we have the song Rain, performed by Mai Yamane, who we've heard in the closing theme for The Real Folk Blues and episode two's Want It Back. But the original version of the song actually used Steve Conte. Just like moments turn to hours. Mother used to say, if you want you'll find a way. But mother never danced through Who would go on to become the guitarist for the New York Dolls? And yes, he did that after Bebop. He joined the group in 2004 and departed in 2010. And Steve Conte's version was going to be used in this episode, but it was changed at some point because the very first Cowboy Bebop CD has the Steve Conte version, not the May Yamane version, and fans hate it. Like, go back and look at the 2001 reviews on Amazon.com. 
It's like, what happened to Rain? Why don't they have a good version of Rain? Just because it's different. You know, it's crazy. What do you think of the song Rain? Too cheesy? It doesn't work for you. You're not a big fan of the vocal song so far. No, it's... It's fine. I, I think there's better use of music in this episode, uh, especially in the end, uh, or especially at the end, mm. uh, you know, after the big church fight. So that that scene in particular is the best use of music. And I, I think the best use of music in Bebop is when they sort of juxtapose like really somber, quiet music with really intense action or their use of silence. It, it, they're like the absence of music is often uh, some of the most memorable stuff in Cowboy Bebop. I do have to say the song Rain is really effective though, because I mean, think about when Spike is walking up to the church. Like, think about what it looks like. Think about everything for just a moment. You might assume it's raining. It's not. It never is at all in this episode. It just gives you that impression completely through the song. There's dark clouds, not a single raindrop. Okay, so we're finally getting this church scene that we've been talking about, you know, and, and we're, we're getting to this showdown that we've been sort of building to forever and ever and ever. Like, we know this is coming, right? We know that Spike and Vicious have to go toe-to-toe. So, of course, it's at Big Goth Church at the edge of town. So, like, you see the city off in the distance, and then here in the middle of nowhere is this giant goth church. (laughs) And I keep using that word because, you know, normally you think of a church and it's like big and bright and Jesus and yay. And this is just like probably abandoned and it's, it's kind of bathed in shadow and it's hard to tell what time of day it actually is. Like, is our, is this the middle of the night? Is it just super overcast? It, the whole thing has this like really ominous darkness to it. Do you think this is the same day that Mao got killed or is this later? I have no idea. You you kind of this almost feels like out of time and and space. Like it, it feels like an isolated place that's just divorced from the rest of the world that we've been in. Uh and it's very video game-ish in that regard. Like I feel like we just got to a new level, right? So th- this is like it's very dramatic too. So Spike is like walking into this church and again, just harsh harsh shadows and uh, before I, before I say this, the sky's fucking red, isn't it? The sky's purple, yeah. but but uh, it 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 does have like a demonic overtone. Yeah. So in addition to all these like dark, harsh shadows, as Spike is walking in this church, if if you look up at the sky, it's like this reddish, purplish hue, and it's it's all very ominous. And again, it feels otherworldly. I mean, obviously they're not on Earth, so it is literally otherworldly, but it feels like we're in a different place entirely. Now, I didn't think about this until right now. Is the darkness the past? Because in the very opening shot, you see Mao looking out the window into the light. He was facing the darkness. He presses his thumb. He's very like cordial, but kind of serious. And then he looks out into the light and he's like, oh, thank God I can finally relax. Almost like the light is the future. And then Vicious comes in and takes it back. He's dressed in all black with white hair. He actually looks like the sky, almost. Majority of it is darkness and just a little bit of light. I just think of it as like, if I was a guy like Vicious... Well, my... yeah, let's, what do you mean, if? Come okay. on. I am, I am, just yeah. Just put the sword down. The, the people listening, they don't, <laughs> they don't know what I really look like. But, uh, you know, I, I'm a lot like Vicious myself. I carry around a large sword. I have flowing silver hair. I sneer at people. I uh, I slit the occasional throat. What can I say, you know? 
of course he's going to hang out in some gloomy-ass church in the middle of nowhere, right? Like, where else would he be? I think there's a- Chuck E. Cheese? I think the reason he's there is because that might have been where the very first opening shot of the first episode took place. Because we see that weird shot where we see a stained glass window in the uh, in the background in a flashback. So I think he's bringing Spike back here because this might have been his last hit job. Yeah, there, there's some sort of connection here. And I, I don't know if, if we're completely privy to what it is, but clearly this is somewhere that means something to the both of them for one reason or another. It would um, make sense why it doesn't look like anyone's been in it for like years and years. Mm-hmm. Also... <laughs> Shout out to the neo-noir references here, too, because, I mean, aside from all the, you know, the harsh shadows, which is very, you know, uh, indicative of of noir, uh, (laughs) Spike has a serious Blade Runner look going right now Mm -hmm. uh, with a side of uh, Le Samurai, the Jean-Pierre Melville movie. Let's talk about it for just a moment. Le Samurai is one of the best movies ever. Like, it is so good. It is frustratingly good. And... If you are like, oh, I love Battle of Fallen Angels, I'm going to go watch it right now, I think you're going to be kind of bored. It's very slow for the majority of it. But it's, I think, in a lot of ways where, didn't the creator Cowboy Bebop say that, like, he wanted to build the show around Spike and Spike was just, like, the coolest? That's basically what Le Samurai is. It's this one character who's just, like, the coolest dude. And the whole movie is just sort of built around that. And he's a bit, like, vicious. If you think about it, like the, the he might look like Spike, but like the way that he comes out of darkness throughout the film is a lot like Vicious, who just seems to materialize uh, from yeah. from the darkness. The other, I was trying to think of what this outfit reminded me of, and the other thing that came to mind was, uh, I don't. Have you played Snatcher before? Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so which is like is Blade Runner? Yeah, which is basically Blade Runner. So that makes sense too. And we know that the the creator Cowboy Bebop is kind of a Blade Runner mark, so that makes sense. And Snatcher, of course, is the Hideo Kojima Sega CD as well as MSX2 video game. It was on a bunch of different consoles. Look at you, nerd. I love that low shot of Spike coming into the church. It, it actually replicates the look of Vicious entering, stepping over the dead bodies at the very beginning. I know we said this before, kind of like uh, what George Lucas prefers to say, these scenes rhyme. This whole action scene that plays out here in the church, because, you know, it, it's not you can't just have, you know, your your initial one-on-one encounter you got to have the big shootout first (laughs) as is classic anime also you have to have like the back and forth dialogue Uh, let's talk about that dialogue for just uh just a moment there the whole angels being forced out of heaven become devils and spike says he's in a bad dream vicious says i'll wake you up and spike says uh they should take their time they're flirting this is no i'm serious this is flirting and i don't think it's a uh it's not it's not sexual but there is a desire there Mm -hmm. like they have imagined this moment. They've never fought before is the vibe that I get. Yeah. And this is finally going to happen. They're finally going to settle the score. No, there's definitely like, yeah, there's obvious bad blood between them. And there seems like, it, it seems like they've been waiting to do this for a very long time. So, I mean, in this dialogue. A lot of tension. Yeah, this dialogue is corny unless you understand that this is, um, this is a flirtatious yeah. desire to murder each other. Well, and it's not, I mean, it could be cornier. They could be like, and my power level is growing. <laughs> Dang, that would be so much cooler. Then then maybe uh, Spike's hair could turn white. And- yes, and then more <laughs> anime happens. I will say, at the very least, Vicious is not a stupid villain. He's not a superhero villain. Spike says, you killed the man that made you what you are. And Vicious just is like, yep, I did. But he was not the man that he once was. And I think that shows that Vicious is just obsessed with the past. Spike isn't obsessed with the past. Mal clearly wasn't. This is just what Vicious is. He wants everything to be exactly the same for whatever reason. But he's also not a liar. 
He's not going to try and deceive anybody. He's like, that's exactly who I am. I know who I am. Now think about this for a minute. Vicious says, you're a beast that lost its fangs. That's why you need to die, Spike. We, the audience, will likely agree with that statement because we've seen Spike for four episodes. He likes the kung fu fight. He likes to listen to the jazz music. He's a funny guy. He likes to take naps. He's lazy. So, of course, he's a beast that used to be bad, but he's not anymore. The surprise about the next scene is that no, 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 Spike is still the same person. He just has maybe a greater emotional range than Vicious does. And he's startled for a moment by the sound of Faye, who is struggling with a gun to her head. Spike pulls out his pistol, once again in first person, hands again, and it goes in and out of focus to reveal Faye. Now, how incredible is this? Think about this for just a moment. We see a drawing of Spike pointing a gun, then a closer shot, then we see a shot of his eye. No animation whatsoever. Three drawings. They're not fluid. They're not connected. They're just shot, shot, shot. Then we spend all that budget that we could have spent showing something else, showing the finger pull the trigger, because that's what matters. Once again, focusing on hands. Just saying. And this dude getting his forehead ruined. <laughs> yeah, this this is great because, I mean, there's there's a lot of intense violence in this episode, but the entire time we see Spike like, oh, I'm serious, Spike, now I've got a vendetta, and we're learning all these new things about him, and... Even though it's pretty convincing, at the same time, it's just like, well, you're still kind of a goofball. Like, uh, and then the moment where Faye's got a gun to her head and she's just like, ah, help, they're going to kill me. And instead of like, you know, losing his cool or anything, his initial reaction is just like, yeah, fuck it. I'm just going to shoot this guy in the head. And But think about it from like a budget standpoint. If they had animated Spike breathing or moving in any way, it would actually kind of ruin the scene. The idea that he is like statuesque. In that moment, he's not considering anything. Faye is the audience surrogate in this moment because we've never seen Spike deliberately kill someone. He might have punched somebody in space. You know, he might have uh, shot down a few spaceships or whatever, which who knows if those were drones. He looked at a man right in the eyes and blew his brains out. Spike is a fucking murderer, and you can tell this is not the first time. The next time we see Spike shooting somebody, by the way, it's this guy that's moving with two frames of animation, but they spend all the other extra animation on a smoke cloud slowly growing from his gun, and then he runs through it. I thought you were going to say on face boobs. (laughs) 70% of the animation in this episode is face boobs, because anime. That's actually kind of true. But how good is it? That they put that in there where where Faye looks up and tells someone to be careful, and it's a dead body that falls from the ceiling. This whole shootout that, that kind of transpires from this is, it, it's a total, like, John Woo moment where you, you have essentially, like, a bullet ballet. <laughs> you know, there's just all kinds of just back and forth and uh, just quick cuts between these guys that are trying to, you know, shoot Spike with automatic weapons. And, of course, he's the badass, which is the pistol shooting these guys. Uh, and it's just, a, it's a great little action scene. There's grenades. And, there's yeah, explosions. there's grenades and explosions. And while we've seen Spike engage in, in plenty of violence, I don't think it's been like this visceral or on this level, really. I mean, we've, we haven't seen him commit mass murder at close range yet. So we're seeing a whole other side of him through this whole thing. Oh, yeah. And I love that shot where uh, the camera's following him from the perspective of one of his pursuers. And it goes right to left, and he hides behind that pillar and then jumps out. It's, uh, that's a lot like a—I'm not sure what it's inspired from, but I'm sure it's something from the 60s. It's too specific. It has to be from something. Mm. And also, the best animation of the entire episode, in, in my opinion, is Spike being shot in the stomach and him crumpling up before he runs up the stairs. It is 
you feel his pain like 100 percent yeah which i really enjoyed that too because you know he's having this whole like superman psycho killer moment where he's just blasting through these guys but he's still just human you know and when he gets blasted it's very like oh like like you said it feels like you're getting a gut punch right there uh, but then you watch him kind of struggle through it and continue to shoot the shit out of people, which, again, a very John Woo thing to do. Uh, does John Woo usually have his protagonists become progressively more and more injured, almost like a, like a Bruce Wilson diehard kind of scenario? I, I mean, you know, it's it's Hong Kong action, baby. Like, that's... <laughs> well, that's the difference, I think, is that in, in, in the West, we don't really have, um, and I think we'll talk about this later on, but we don't have our heroes win by luck. They have mm-hmm. to be decisively winning. They did it. They they were stronger and stronger and stronger. Whereas I think in the West, it's it's about perseverance. Or in East. the East, it's about perseverance uh, rather than strength. And that you lucked into being the winner at the end. Yeah. Well, I mean, John Woo movies, the only thing you can count on is someone releasing a bunch of doves. <laughs> Ooh, boy. Yes. Well, we have blackbirds here instead. What I love is when Spike gets injured and he runs up, we cut to Jet, who we learn is a big fan of bonsai trees. Which is hilarious, too, by the way. Just that he's like, oh, Faye has been captured. Spike is off in this like massive shootout at like demonic goth church featuring video game villain. (laughs) And he's just like, I'm going to I'm going to trim this bonsai tree. But he doesn't do a good job. He actually chops off a huge chunk of the tree. What do you call that exactly? A limb. He's cutting off a limb. He's missing a limb. I'm telling you, it's all intentional, baby. Oh, I'm butchering it. We just saw literally like five explosions. Faye's running out. She's handcuffed. Spike has been shot in the stomach. And just Jet's enjoying his bonsai tree. Or I guess not enjoying it. Obviously, Faye calls in to Jet saying you have to save him. He says tough and he hangs up the phone, but obviously he knows where Spike is because he was there for the phone call, so we don't need to reveal that. It it all works. It all connects together. And he stops and he looks at the tree. He's looking at the severed limb and he decides to go and help Spike. He wants to help him almost like he wishes he could help himself. I I just, I love that. Now, blink and you'll miss it. The next bit of animation is a man being shot through the forehead and then he continues to shoot the machine gun. (laughs) Go back and watch it frame by frame. Because he gets shot in the shoulder, you see him go, Err! then shot in the head, pupils are gone, blood sprays out the back, and then you see the body tense, and then the machine gun starts firing. It's really incredible. Uh, I love how Vicious appears in the fight. He's literally in the darkness, and they just have him fade in. And that, think about it for a minute. He's in the darkness, he fades in, Spike is facing the light. It is his past literally trying to catch him. We're going to take a, a bit of a break here for just one moment, that Steve... I'm sorry, you're not going to understand anything I'm about to say. Uh-oh. Anime alert! Are you going to, like, sound the anime alarm? <laughs> My power level is growing! <laughs> Who is Vicious? I don't mean, you know, in Cowboy Bebop. I guess what I mean to say is, why is Vicious? Why does he exist in the Bebop universe? It doesn't seem to gel with most of Watanabe's influences. Would Vicious fit in Blade Runner? Not really. Dirty Harry? No. Enter the Dragon? I guess maybe the guy with the claw hands, but no, not that either. But he does sort of fit in with Lupin the Third. Now, you non-anime fans may recall we discussed this during the very first episode. But even anime fans don't really know about the very first series of Lupin. Uh, if you were watching Adult Swim back in the mid-2000s and you were watching episodes of Lupin, that's actually the second series. The one that's far more comedic and has all the heroes working together to commit crimes. The first series was never dubbed in America. I actually had a Chinese bootleg back in the day. And it's far darker. 
and weirder than any of the other Lupin series. It's actually off-putting, I think, for a lot of people. Well, Watanabe has said, the first series was my favorite. So let's talk about Lupin for a second. It's crucial to our understanding of Bebop. Spike is basically the charismatic Lupin, the thief. We've seen Spike steal things constantly. Faye is the self-centered femme fatale, just like Fujiko. I mean, come on, her calling up and being like, hey, you have to save me. That is totally something from Lupin. Jet is the weathered but loyal ally comparable to Jigen that leaves only one character left. Goemon, who is the master swordsman and partner of Lupin. Now, after I thought of this, I googled it, and of course, at least one other person figured this out, but they didn't make the connection to the first series. This is why it matters. Goemon was the only character that didn't start off as a partner, but a villain to Lupin. In fact, he ran through multiple chapters of the Lupin manga, but eventually he joined the Lupin gang and they all became friends. But most people never read that first part, unless you're Watanabe, who loves the first series. So who is he going to make the villain of Bebop? Obviously, someone like Goemon, which means vicious is Goemon. Now that might seem like a big deal to you, but man, some anime nerd was like, whoa, I never thought of that. Okay, let's rejoin this fantastic animation of Spike having the gun being knocked out of his hand. No, I like this a lot because, I mean, Spike's getting the shit kicked out of him right now, uh, but also he's still, you, you get the impression that if he wasn't, you know, shot in the belly, then he might actually get the upper hand on Vicious. So there's this whole back and forth thing they do. And this is a very John Woo thing to do where, you know, two guys wrestle around, they both draw and cock a gun and point it at each other's heads. Uh, although in this case, we get them kind of rolling around and jawing at each other, and then you get, like, the sword to the chest and then the gun to the head. By the way, that's a close-up of a hand grabbing the gun and then putting it to the, uh, put it to the chest there. I'm just saying. Also, yeah. let's talk about for a second there. That sword being put right on Spike is nearly an identical position to where the blade was put onto the thumb in the very first scene. First scene was meant to be the last bit of bloodshed, and look where we are now. So it's supposed to kind of remind us where we all started from. I, I actually, yeah, and I, and I love this too because, you know, normally when you see a scene like this where it's just like, oh, I've got my gun to your head and oh, here's my sword to your chest. There's something, there's something that breaks the stalemate mm -hmm. and gives someone else the upper hand. But in this case, they both just fucking blow each other away. Like, Yeah. Well, <laughs> not at first, not at first because Vicious, I, you know, he actually says like, you're, you're a ravenous beast just like me. This mm -hmm. is who, and I, I hate those scenes where they're like, you know, you and I aren't so different. <laughs> I was just about to say. <laughs> Those are the worst. But in the case of this, that was the reason for Vicious trying to kill him is because he was different. Mm -hmm. And now that he thinks he's not, he's second guessing it and saying, do you know what you look like? You look like a ravenous beast. And as soon as Spike's like, no, 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 that's not me. That's when he loses it. And he goes, then how are you still alive? And I don't think he's, it, that sounds like such a cheesy line, but I think it's really like Vicious cannot comprehend how someone could live not like him but be so much like him. He can't, mm -hmm. he's literally stunted his development. He wants to be in the past. Well, and now here comes the best part where, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, when this whole thing is happening, I assume that it's going to end with, and then something happens and then Spike does a thing and then, oh, and then Jet comes and saves the day and then everybody. Was that like, Were you waiting for the moment where Jet runs in and is like, I got your back, Spike. Yeah, I was, I was waiting for Jet to like fly in on a, on a fucking spaceship and just like blast Vicious or something. It's like, no, Vicious grabs Spike by the face and throws him out of a giant glass window. Would you say that perhaps uh, when angels are cast out of heaven, they become devils? Ooh, and then they're fallen angels. But this, this is, this makes the episode. Mm. Like, it's a solid episode, but this makes the episode. Because, you know, we've, we've hinted at this relationship between these two people. And then 
as Spike is tossed out, you have this incredible song, which, I mean, in terms of like music to visuals and, and how they kind of synergize and, and work together, I the, so far in the first five episodes, this is the best. Like music and, and visuals working together in harmony. It's fucking gorgeous. So here's the thing. Yoko Kano was given such an advance for working on the entire show. She already had songs written before the very first script was finished. So she turned this in and Watanabe heard the song and he designed this scene for it, which makes way more sense. It kind of reminds you of like when you're watching a movie and they set it to some classic 70s rock song and the director has already paced out exactly how it's going to work. It almost feels like original licensed music in a way, if that makes any sense. We see Spike like looking back at the church and like glasses raining down and we're really like focused in on his eyes. And then you have these series of flashbacks in like sepia tone mm-hmm. and we start to understand the relationship between him and Vicious a little bit more. So um, it, it kind of jumps between a bunch of scenes really quickly mm. and it's hard to piece together because these are all just like fragments of their past together, but you can still sort of piece together what their relationship was like. So there's all these things where we see them, uh, you know, fighting alongside each other, like back to back shooting people. It's the most um, anime thing in Cowboy Bebop is that shot. Yeah, right. It's so unrealistic. It's like, <laughs> this would never happen. So yeah, there's that. And then uh, we- do you, do you think that that actually ever happened? This is an uh, not to uh, cut off what you're about to say, but do you think that that the 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 glowing yellow the the that's dominating all of these scenes is this like an idealized version of the past or is this really his past? Oh no, I think it's just like sepia tone. Like oh. this is the and that's that's how they're telling us. Oh, this is this is what happened. Uh, no, I, I I mean some of it may be idealized, but it all seems kind of somber to me. So oh, I, I, mean, I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I don't think idealized would be the right word, but yeah. So it's uh, it shows them fighting alongside each other, which you know we kind of gathered already that they worked together, they were friends, um, and then it shows the church that we're at now. So obviously this plays a role in both of their lives for one reason or another. And then the other thing is, is they keep showing this woman Mm. over and over again. And there's like, you know, oh, shot of like a rose in a puddle. So then you start to think, oh, like, did these guys get, because the way that I was sort of thinking about it was they grew apart because Vicious is kind of a lunatic dickhead and Spike, isn't as much of a lunatic dickhead. Yeah. Uh, and, and they just had like different moral compasses. But then you have this woman involved and it makes it makes you think like, I don't know, was was there something like some sort of love triangle going on or was Spike's decision to, you know, leave Vicious, was that related to this woman or something that happened between them? And it just, it raises a lot of questions, but at the same time, you can see that they're, relationship between Spike and Vicious is really deep and also incredibly strained, so it all makes sense. But also, this is the third act. You know, we see the people signing the contract, third act. We see that Jed is not going to go along with them, third act. Everything we're seeing is the third act, and now they're showing us the first act, but no, 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 no. They're showing you the third act of a previous story. (laughs) They will not give you any sort of details, and that is so much trust in the audience saying, no, you'll pay attention. We believe in you. We yeah. won't We won't have to tell you exactly how many people live on this planet or what kind of ship it is or what, how gateway systems work. It's about characters and it's about people and it's about emotion. And I, I've watched this scene uh, on its own and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You need the full episode because this is the crescendo. This is like, it's almost like turning on a guitar solo. It mm-hmm. wouldn't work. You need the entire episode to give yeah, that context. Exactly. You need the context for sure. Uh, <laughs> and, but, and like you said, the rose in the puddle... 
it's, it's saying that on its own is pathetic. That is yeah, cheesy right? symbolism. It sounds cheesy as fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it all makes sense in the context of the broader episode. And also, this is another sequence too, where I just assume that like, for some reason, someone would come and save him. Yeah. But it's just like. No, he threw a grenade and the building blew oh, up. Oh, wait, wait. No, no, no. We have to go back because that's the first thing we see. He gets thrown out the window and we immediately see the grenade. Just like, he, he didn't even hesitate. He threw the grenade yeah, right he away. he threw the grenade right when he got thrown by the face out the window, which is, that's good thinking. And for the first time we see Vicious just being like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. The look <laughs> on his face is like, are you kidding me? This can't be real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, the, the grenade explodes and it's just like raining glass down and there's fire. And all I can think of is like, I know there's like 20 more episodes of this, <laughs> but I really think Spike's going to die. Hey, my fan theory is that Spike dies right here and everything else was a dream. Bum, bum, bum. Check out my YouTube channel. It's going to have a picture of Spike and it's going to have X's over his eyes and a big yellow question mark. And it's going to say dad. You know, that would probably get you a million views. Would, yeah. You realize that, right? Every shot of his memory is just a drawing. It's, it very rarely does it have movement. Yeah. Um, it's like a snapshot, essentially. Yeah. It's like an old photograph. But those drawings are so good. They're mm-hmm. such good because there's one that's just an empty kitchen. And there's so much uh, mood. There's such an emotional connection to that. Mm-hmm. That is just, it's just an empty kitchen. But the way the light and the shadow touches it, it's home. You well, can feel yeah, it. Yeah, and it's, it's weird to see Spike having like close, meaningful relationships with people, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the people he's working with, with like Vicious or this woman who we don't really know, but it's assumed that there's some sort of romantic bond between them. And then it makes sense. It's like, oh, this is why he won't get close to Jet. Mm. Oh, this is why he has a lot of problems with women so far throughout the uh, series. It, it, you know, it, it all starts to fall into place. So you understand him on a deeper level. Uh, and I also love how, so I assume that he's, dead here but the the last thing that that we see from his past is at some point in the past he got uh beat up shot up and this woman that we keep seeing she was taking care of him she was singing to him so this beautiful voice right such a good scene because you see him falling face first just like the boy yeah uh, that was still in the pornography and it's a repeated shot of just like being completely helpless. But, uh, but also, he, before we move on too much, I just, I love that he says, sing for me, please. It's the very first time we've heard Spike want something. Oh, yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. He's not, he actually He actually asks some- for something. Yeah. And he says, please. Yes. What has Spike ever said, please? That, that's such an important moment because everything else has been maybe a need or he's been angry or something else. This is him. Yeah. Just saying like, a command. <laughs> but of yeah. course, like you were saying. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, you have this moment where you're like, sing for me, please. And you're like, oh, wow, that's not very Spike of you, but okay. And then well, all of a sudden he wakes up in it, on, on what is presumably the bebop, covered in bandages in the most comical way. I still laugh when I watch this. It's just such a jarring moment because you're just like, wow, what a beautiful, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you dressed up like that? And you know what's funny? Look at the bandages. This blonde woman very carefully wrapped him up. Whereas on, back on the Bebop, they just went up, just uses all the bandages we got. <laughs> it's so great. So, and, and it's kind of like a continuation of, of that final flashback moment. Faye is sort of humming and singing to herself. <laughs> and she's been, I mean, and you got to keep, she's like, oh, you've been asleep for three days. So she's literally like there taking care of him, presumably for the last three days. Yes. And he's got, he had to be like super close to death. He was shot in the stomach and thrown out of a building. Yeah. And there was an explosion that looked like a nuclear bomb went off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like singing and humming or whatever. And the first thing he says is like, oh, your, your singing is off key. 
He draws her. He actually draws her in to say that. Yeah. Oh my god. Which is that? Yeah, that's that's modern day Spike for sure. Of course, she does the only logical thing: picks up a pillow, smacks him over the face. Like big, 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 big shout out to uh, the voice, uh, Steve Bloom. When his oh is just so good for this scene. I don't want to undercut the emotional state of it, so let's just run through it, and then I want to go back on this for just a second. But just having that music playing, piano bar, and watching uh, uh, Faye give this big butch stomp back to the room. She's like, fuck it, fine. I did everything for you for three days. I made sure you were alive. And the first thing you do is you criticize me for just humming. Like, just <laughs> humming. Off key, though. Yeah, like... What a petty, rude thing to say, regardless of the circumstance, let alone the circumstance. And Jet immediately is like, oh, oh, well, because he knows everything is back to normal. And, you know, we see uh, Spike lift up off of his forehead the ace of spades while feathers rain down on him. White feathers. No more black feathers because he's he's escaped the past. He's in the present. Uh, And those came from the pillow, of course. And he looks at the ace of spades. Or the John Woo doves. We don't know. Good point. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we see the ace of spades and see a space cowboy as the episode closes. By the way, rewatch the credits if you want. I mean, Steve will not want to rewatch the credits. Maybe put on mute before you watch the credits. Yeah. But you do see Spike going around and shopping for flowers, which might lead to what the, that might be a bit of a prequel right there. Mm. Although we see two different instances of him with flowers, so it's unclear whether or not this is when he goes and shoots those guys with he, when he has the... Uh, the guns in the roses, <clears throat> mm. or uh, <laughs> or when he, of course, uh, is giving maybe roses to this woman. But let's go back for a moment. What a great ending. Technically, there's some interesting things to look at. First of all, when Jet is uh, peeking his head around the corner uh, the second time when he goes back in, that's the exact same shot taken from the very first episode. They just, <laughs> they just reused it. Yeah, because I, I was watching it, and because I have to watch these episodes super slow, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, I, I recognized it right away. I went back and I had my Funimation account on uh, one screen and another one, and I played them at the exact same time. Uh, there's new animation when he leans in. There's no new animation when he leans out. That's why he's wearing those glasses because he was cooking in the very first episode. They also added a static hand. Although I don't think that's symbolism there. <laughs> they added a static hand, so it looks like a, a completely different shot. <laughs> but we do close on the shot of a hand looking at the ace of spades. Just like we opened with a shot of a hand, you know, cutting the thumb, we close with a hand. That's no mistake. But what is a mistake is that that can't be Spike's hand. The animator screwed up. Spike is what? covered in bandages. The hand at the end of the episode is not. And you might say, well, big deal. They probably just reused the hand that uh, when Faye was holding the card earlier. Nope, she's holding it a completely different way. They just screwed up. A big, fat, continuity error, which means the Battle of Fallen Angels is a suck-ass episode, and I hate it. It bums me out. Oh, you better. Somebody just screamed really loudly. They're already all caps emailing you. Let's say, you know what, let's talk about this for a moment just emotionally, because we'll wrap up in what we think about the episode in general. Does this work for you going from the starkest of Starks, the near-death experience, to uh, ABC sitcom? Yeah, because I think it's in the true spirit of the show or what the show wants to be. Like, when... When Cowboy Bebop is firing on all cylinders, it's this episode and it's episode one. Oh, there's plenty more to come, baby. Where, but I, I'm, I'm saying so far. Yeah, yeah. Where you have just this stark violence and, and really serious themes, but also it has a lightheartedness to it. Mm. And it's able to juxtapose those things pretty seamlessly, which is hard to do because, you know, consistent tone is important 
to maintain that emotional resonance. And Cowboy Bebop is actually able to use just comedy and lightheartedness as a, you know, a, a release from all of that tension. And it's it's nice, you know? Can you believe this is the same show we saw two episodes ago with Gordon asking for his poker chip back and just this meaningless stuff? Nothing had any... And I don't mean like, oh, look at the hands. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying these scenes didn't really mean anything. And now we're watching this episode where everything is connected to relationships and how people treat each other. I didn't cover all the motifs in here. Obviously, if you want to go back and maybe research it from a Christian angle, there's a lot to dig into. Not just the cathedral, not just Ave Maria, but Spike, of course, was asleep for three days and rose from the dead. Mm. Maybe if you're into that. And dressed like Lazarus. He was dressed like Lazarus, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't seen Lazarus in the flesh, but, you know, I assume. Well, Jesus did weep. We know that much. Well, now that we're done with the episode, before we go to our final conclusions, we have to add numerical ratings to everything, which means... Spike, how many cigarettes has he smoked so far? Four. No cigarettes in this episode either, unless we count his past cigarettes, which we're not going to do that. No, we can't. We can't punish him for his past sins. That wouldn't be fair. Also worth noting that, yes, there are cigarette butts on the ground, but we can't count those because we can't prove that Spike smoked them. Now, Dr. Steve, what is the score this week? For the inometer. You know, last week we talked a little bit about how it's about quality and not quantity. And the lack of iron quantity here is is appalling oh, to boy. me. Oh, no. He's only in this episode for like 1.5 seconds. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. Uh, but you know what? what? Even if he's only in the episode for one second, uh-huh. add a zero next to that because that's what he gets. Zen! What's Zen? That's 10. A 10! Incredible, good boy. Now, Steve, you've been digging in the depths of Funimation and Internet Movie Database. Yeah. Can you tell us what the ratings for this week's episode was? Sure. Funimation gave it four and a half stars. No. Which is pretty good. That's the highest rate so far. Mm-hmm. And IMDb gave it an 8.3. Not an 8.4, though. That's, it's not there. I, I don't blame them. I mean, the hand was not the same as the bandage hand. 8.3, though, is insanely high for Anime Database. Yeah, that is pretty high. Let's wrap it up by talking about what we thought of the entire episode. You know, for me, this is absolutely the best of what anime and television can be when Bebop really begins to take on the methodology of an album. Hear me out. You know, just like an album, you can have a single song that stands alone. You can listen to one song. Sure you can. But it's when you have them together and you create an album that you take a real journey with it. Now, songs don't have to be related. Just like Bebop doesn't need to have, you know, continuity in every single episode. We're not going to see the characters from episode one suddenly come back from the dead and fight Spike. That's not what's going on here. It's just about maintaining and holding a mood throughout the episode. And together they create Bebop. This is the beginning of that. This and, of course, episode one. And I would say episode two as well because I'm a big fan of that one. Bebop has proven that it can play into like a standard adventure show. It can be Johnny Quest if you want it to be Johnny Quest, but this is where it abandons all familiar genres and it just puts faith back into the audience. This is not about selling spaceships at all. In fact, I think the only spaceship shot is um, Faye landing in front of the opera house. You can tell this is a different era. It's about the characters. It's about taking the visual cues and thinking about what it could mean. Spike's going to get thrown out a window. Instead of being an action scene, It's a reflective moment of character, and that is the big difference between it and so many other shows. I first saw this 17 years ago, 2001, back on the DVDs, back when the first DVDs came out. And it doesn't matter how many times you watch it, you're always going to see it on a different level. Even though I understand it, I feel like I finally get it. And this time, for me, it was was the character of Annie, the shopkeeper who is artfully disassociated herself to maintain her mental independence. 
she's still going to say, Spike, don't do this. This is a bad idea. But her compulsion will still hand him the gun, even though he doesn't even exist in her mind. Brilliant character. And second is how good the limited animation was here. And also, of course, hands. Hands are everything. Hands are agency. I'm sure someone's going to be pissed that I keep mentioning hands. <laughs> but Stephen. Yes. What would you say about this Ballad of Fallen Angels? Uh, I, I, I really dug it. Um, when I think about this episode and I think about my experience with the show so far, because you got to remember, if you're listening to us for the first time, I don't know a lot about anime. I haven't watched a lot of anime. I'm watching Cowboy Bebop uh, really all the way through for the first time. And for for me, episode five sort of fulfills the promise of that pilot episode. And because, you know, when I watched that, I was just like, oh, holy shit, this isn't what I normally associate with anime. And I'll crack all kinds of jokes on here and make it, oh, it's kind of anime-ish, blah, 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 blah. And, and there are a lot of stereotypes that are associated with anime. Jiggle. And, yeah, the jiggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shout out to Faye. Um, yeah, so it, this really takes it to a new level. And it's just, it's such a well-crafted story. Um, it's so economical. The The only thing about it is, is like, it's got so much packed into it that I almost wish it was like an hour long show just so this could breathe a little bit more. Uh, cause it really it's, it's blink and you miss it, you know? Uh, but yeah, it's a great episode. Loved it. Okay. Well, I think that wraps it up for this episode. Steve, where can people reach you on the internet? Well, if you want to yell at me specifically, you can find me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. Uh, if you want more amazing podcast action, you can go to optimismvaccine.com. We've got a whole bunch of pop culture uh, podcasts related to film, television, music, you name it, we do it. Also, we've got some amazing articles that you should check out about everything under the sun. It's all great. You'll love it. There's even some anime stuff. Mm. If you dig deep, you'll find it. You'll find it. It's there. And hey, since you love this podcast so much, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, Steve, how can I, the lowly listener, help you, podcaster extraordinaire? And I'm glad you asked. The answer is simple. I need you to go to our iTunes page. There's literally a link right here in the description of this episode. Go to our iTunes page, give us five stars, write us a written review. When you do that, it makes us more visible. When we're more visible, more people can discover us, the more listeners we have, then the more content we can put out for you. Help us climb those iTunes charts and take over the world. Also, I've heard that uh, if you like Battle of Fallen Angels, you'll want to give this five stars because it's the fifth episode, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> Colin, how about you? Where do people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Crychop. You can also go to youtube.com slash video games are dumb to check out my video game video content. It's a lot of video, all for them eyeballs. But that's going to do it for this episode. For Steve Cuff, I'm Colin Tanner. See ya, Space Cowboy. Kids these days. Yeah, I tell ya. Running around like they got somewhere to be. Uh-huh. Listening to that damn harmonica music all day and night. Wait, what? Not doing their homework or their chores. Okay, that sounds more like kids. Next episode, Sympathy for the Devil. Can we go back to the harmonica? <laughs> <laughs>